Hello and welcome to World History Encyclopedia's podcast, where we put your questions to archaeologists, historians and curators, our experts on history. I'm Fiona Richards, and I'm delighted to be here today talking to Dr. Carrie Gibson. Carrie describes herself as a US-born, UK-based historian and journalist with a large obsession about small islands. Carrie received a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Georgia in 1998, and after working on local newspapers and small magazines, she joined The Guardian, a UK-based newspaper, from 2000 to 2006, working in a variety of editing roles. In 2005, she graduated with an MA in History from Burbeck College at the University of London, and in 2010, received her doctorate from Cambridge, with her thesis focusing on the impact of Haitian Revolution on the Hispanic Caribbean. Today, Carrie continues to contribute to The Guardian and its sister paper, The Observer, and her work has appeared in many media outlets, including BBC's Radio 4. She has also published two books, The first, Empire's Crossroads, is a comprehensive history of the Caribbean and her latest book called El Norte, the epic and forgotten story of Hispanic North America, which was shortlisted for the Mark Linton History Prize in January last year. Welcome, Carrie, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'd just like to start with a fairly easy question. What made you change from journalism to history? I started out as a journalist uh, because I was interested in lots and lots of things. And the nice thing about being a journalist is you get to read about or edit stories on or report on lots and lots of different subjects. But as time went on, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into certain things that were becoming quite interesting to me. One of them, for instance, was British colonial history, and that would later kind of extend to, to other colonial history uh, histories. So they say with journalism that it's the first draft of history, and I wanted to go a bit deeper and start writing second, third, fourth drafts of things. I mean, the two disciplines can be very complementary, and it's nice to have access to the media and be, you know, be able to write comment pieces or do some reporting, as I've done for The Guardian and The Observer, and kind of marry the two things together so that readers think a little more critically, perhaps, about current events and, and can see the, the longer histories behind them. Fantastic. You say that your large obsession with small islands led to your first book. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, I grew up in the United States. Um, I was born in Ohio and grew up in Tennessee and Georgia. And those are all very landlocked places. I mean, technically, Ohio is on a great lake, but they're, they're a long way from islands, from the sea, from the oceans. And so I became fascinated with small places in in many ways, uh, because the United States is so large and so diverse. Though within that, I grew up in my most formative years were in the Deep South, which has a long history that involves slavery and segregation. And when I looked down to the Caribbean, I saw very similar histories that played out quite differently. And so, so there's definitely a connection between where I grew up and what I'm interested in as a historian. But there's also just a special fascination for me about the diversity within a very small space. Uh, and of course, I live in Britain, <laughs> which is, again, <laughs> another place where there's a, a lot of diversity squeezed into um, a tiny space. At WHE, we are obviously fans of history, and we know how important it is to what is happening today, just as you've said. In Empire's Crossroads, you write that people might not know that the Caribbean is an important hub in the development of the modern world economy. Could you tell us a little bit more about that statement? Certainly. When you say the Caribbean, 
today, people tend to think of, depending what country you're in, they tend to think of perhaps cricket, but mostly holidays. And so it's kind of forgotten among people who are not from the Caribbean. Within the Caribbean, this is a very, very live history. But for people who go to visit and they go to a resort and it's very nice and it's sunny and isn't this great and then they go back home, they might not realize that the entire kind of modern world was forged in the Caribbean, partly because this is where we see the development of a kind of new type of labor and one that is now very familiar to us. Now, I don't mean chattel slavery, which is, of course, how the Caribbean developed. But some of the, and there's a lot of his, historians working on this, like the working practices, you know, where do we get factories from? Where do we get our concepts of time management, overseers, labor, hierarchies? All of this sort of starts to take shape in ways that were very profound and very much a break from, say, the peasantries of medieval Europe. So what you have, you know, in the Caribbean is you have an economy that becomes based on the enslavement of Africans, the taking of indigenous lands, the the growing of mono, monocultural monocrop, mostly sugar, but there were, were other other crops, and, and enormous riches being made from this and this sort of resource extraction. This also puts into play what is known as the triangular trade, which is when you had Europeans taking manufactured goods, such as certain types of cloth and guns, beads and, and various other things down to the west the coast of western africa trading those for gold for humans for other commodities but over time it very much became in enslaved captives and those people were taken to the caribbean colonies where they were used to grow sugar and there were you know so sugar was then brought back to Europe or taken to North America. There were also byproducts of sugar, things like molasses. So there's also kind of a trade between the British North American colonies, I'm, and I'm going to use Britain as an example, and Britain's uh, Caribbean colonies in terms of, of goods as well. So you have this kind of triangular trade taking shape. And, and this really, there's a lot in it that we would recognize today. No, you know, thankfully, chattel slavery is, is gone. But many of the other aspects to what came out of this we can still see today and of course the money that was made in this helped to fund the industrial revolution back in britain where you know we have horror stories of children working in looms and all kinds of you know abuses in the sort of late 18th early 19th century that again were later reformed but there's a massive uh, connection between this particular moment in the world economy and where we are now. And the Caribbean was very, very, very central to that. Yeah, that's fascinating because you're right. Most people wouldn't have thought that there was so much going on on those small islands at this time. That's great. Thank you. So next, following on from this, when one thinks of empire, I suppose many think of the British Empire and also the French empires. But as we see in your books, it was the Spanish and Portuguese who were the first to conquer and establish settlements outside of Europe, which brings us to our first question from WHE user. And it is from Krish. And he says, why was Britain so clingy about its colonies? and how much damage has it made to the colonies and the natives of the colonies that is brushed away by a lot of historians? So the first thing I would say to that is that a lot of this history is not brushed away by historians. There's a little bit of a structural problem in that a lot of the books that are published by academic presses that, that involve scholarship that has taken decades to do 
don't really get the sort of wide distribution that ones for the more commercial presses do. So there are decades uh, worth of scholarship on the damage that colonialism did, not only to Britain's colonies, um, because this is this is also a theme uh, in just to, to go back to the earlier point. This is also a theme of you know, the other colonial powers. And, you know, we have the Portuguese were the first to branch out and start exploring down the coast of Africa. They they institute an African trade. They, they make colonies in Madeira, the Azores, and this later expands uh, into sort of Brazil, across the Atlantic uh, into Brazil. You have the Spaniards starting with the Caribbean and Columbus, again, extending through the hemisphere. You have the French showing up in the Caribbean. They also show up in Louisiana by the early 1700s. You have the Dutch all over the place as well. They have a few Caribbean islands. They have Suriname. The colonial question is one that kind of affects a lot of the major European powers today. And scholars are working on these sorts of questions. You know, what is the relationship to these former colonies, to these imperial powers? What was the damage to the people who live there? What is the current state of of how people think about this? But the problem is, like I say, it's really hard to get access to some of these books if you're not in the field. Uh, although, thankfully, a lot of them are coming out on Kindle and ebook. So, there's a lot going on within the profession and what's being talked about within it and, and like on academic Twitter and things like that. However, there is a huge disconnect with what's happening uh, publicly coming from people in, in power. I mean, certainly in the case of Britain, there is a narrative coming from the right about the need to reclaim certain histories. And one of those is that of colonialism. And uh, there's kind of a willingness to disavow all these reassessments that have been going on for like the past 20 or 30 years. So in Britain, you have people trying to present the positive side of colonialism um, or saying it wasn't so bad, which of course is deeply problematic to people who are in its former colonies. There was a poll in 2016 where something like 43% of people thought the British Empire was a good thing and about 34% still wanted an empire, which is fascinating for a variety of reasons, but slightly troubling as well. Now, this was quite a few years ago and we saw more recently in Britain during the Black Lives Matter protests uh, that were triggered by what happened to George Floyd in the United States, of people pulling down statues, especially there was one in Bristol of a famous, uh, the city's famous slave trader who uh, they pulled his statue down, you know, and threw it in the river. And that was kind of became quite a big story. And certainly we're seeing uh, Christopher Columbus's ta- toppled in other places. And there's, there's very much kind of a, of a backlash more, more generally. But in Britain, there is a debate going on right now. And it is quite heated. I would say that there are similar debates in places like Spain and Portugal, but to a much, much lesser degree. And then there's the, there's France as well in all of this. And and France has kind of two <laughs> strands, and, and Britain does too, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But France has its earlier empire where it was involved in the slave trade. You know, it was the colonial power of Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, and then it made Haiti pay reparations uh, in order to recognize its independence almost 20 years, more than 20 years after its independence, and, and that sort of thing. And then you have 
kind of the French fallout from the Laysa Empire, which involves Algeria and North Africa and all of the issues around that. And in Britain, Britain has that too. It has this earlier slave trading empire. You know, Britain had a Royal African company. It was absolutely involved in the slave trade, but it also has the later empire, you know, decolonization, starting with India, the decolonization of of African territories and that sort of thing into the 20th century. So these questions span a really, really long time period. And in the present moment in Britain, there's this really kind of vague lip service being paid to this idea that empire was this great thing. But, you know, if you look at when it's happening, it's coming at a time of terrible anxiety under a right wing government. You know, Britain has left the EU. It's standing alone as a nation. That looks very, very fragile. The Scots are about to vote again on whether or not to have a referendum. And so there's this discourse coming from political leadership about hearkening back to this time when Britain had a level of global power and strength. But to my mind, you know, strong, confident nations don't do this. They try to be very clear eyed about their past, own up to their shortcomings and make amends to the communities who suffered under their jurisdictions. And and to to me, that is true strength, not kind of bluster about greatness Mm -hmm. and empire and so forth. You know, much of which, as anyone who lives in former colonial spaces knows, was built on resource exploitation and violence in order to, to exist. So historians have really been on the case with this, but some of the changes in the discourse has to come from, from public leadership. And right now, if it's in their interest to wave a nationalistic flag, I'm, it appears that they're going to do that. But certainly, I think there is a good proportion of the population in, in places like Britain who do understand the damage done by empire and who were part of the protests against that. And so, you know, in that sense, I think there is a, a public tide that is changing. But but most of the historians, uh, certainly within, say, Britain or people within Europe and the U.S. who work on colonial issues uh, have very, very much been been examining those. Fantastic. Thank you. Carrie, moving on to your second book, I have a question. What led you to write a history of Spanish influence in North America? In some ways, this was a merging of two things. One of them is my interest in the Caribbean. And I should say that I also, for my thesis, have specialized in the Spanish Caribbean of uh, islands, the Spanish Caribbean islands of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Dominican Republic. And so, and I speak Spanish. But the reason I speak Spanish is that I learned it in high school. And the reason I learned it in high school is I had a very good Spanish department because we had, over the course of my high school years, an influx of students from Mexico. It was the this is the 90s the 90s it was the NAFTA years and we were starting to see people come to work in the town where I went to high school which was Dalton Georgia and Dalton Georgia has a lot of carpet mills and so people were coming for jobs and there was kind of this whole program where teachers went to Mexico to kind of up their Spanish skills and then Spanish speaking kids you know were coming to emigrate into a school system that until that point had a pretty limited English as a second language program. And so I was really fortunate in that sense to get my introduction to, to this whole world at a very early age. And it obviously having the language skills has been very handy, but I never really thought I would work specifically on the United States. But then I was in the Caribbean during the 2012 election. And I remember watching kind of the run up to, to it and being really surprised i hadn't watched a lot of u.s television and we were in barbados and i feel like maybe we were able to get we were watching it via cable or satellite and i was just really surprised at the 
rhetoric around immigrants and people who are immigrating specifically from Mexico and Latin America. Um, and I, you know, I'd been out of the country. I moved to Britain in the late 90s. And so I was really shocked that the kind of language that was still being used was very, very reminiscent of the way people talked about influx of migrants in during NAFTA. And so it kind of triggered my curiosity about this story because I knew from the Caribbean and from the history of the places that's kind of adjacent to it, like Florida and Louisiana, that there was this Hispanic connection. And then I started to kind of piece together other things, California, Cuban exiles in New York, Puerto Ricans in New York, the whole story of Puerto Rico. And I just thought, wait a minute, there's this like enormous landscape here to to explore. And it's it's a history that people within the US know piecemeal. It's very it's a very divided history. So and I would even go so far as to argue that if you uh, grow up a, a Chicano, i.e. a person of, of Mexican heritage in Southern California, you know, you might be aware of the Cubans in Miami, but you might not know that full story and vice versa. You know, the Cubans in Miami might not be, might be slightly aware of the history of the Dominicans in New York. And I wanted to kind of join those things together because within the field, these are often histories that don't really speak to each other. People who work on Cuba work on Cuba. People who work on Mexico work on Mexico. People who work on the U.S. or Latinos in the U.S. work on that. And I just thought, well, wait a minute. There's like this much, there is this huge uh, panorama. And, and some of that has been done. But I just thought in the context of everything that's going on, it was worth revisiting. So there are historians who've kind of written across this broader landscape. But when I was writing, the whole Trump phenomena happened in 2016, you know, where he was very out, overtly racist towards Latinos. And it, it kind of brought this question up with, with a lot more urgency. And it made me sort of think that, you know, there is a story here. This is this is this is a layer and it goes back. It goes all the way back to the 1500s. I mean, this is this goes this is older than the you know, Puritans and the Pilgrim, English Protestantism, but by a long way. And while you could argue that the Spaniards didn't have the same deep footprint as they did in places like Mexico, you could also say that that doesn't mean it should just be written out and forgotten. And so I wanted to resurrect that history. And and like I say, in the, in the way that I mentioned the earlier sort of fragmentation, depending where you are in the country, people have a lot of memories about about this past and a lot of knowledge about this past. But again, it's not it's not uniform because it's not done in the same shorthand way that a George Washington or, you know, the Mayflower pilgrims are used as images in, in commercial things. And, you know, the Hispanic past isn't really used in that way. I just thought that in that context, it was a really good time to be re-examining this Hispanic legacy. That's really interesting because it brings me on to my next question, actually. I wanted to ask you about the term Hispanic that you had actually used in your book, because does it essentially mean Spanish or actually does it come from the Roman Hispania, which described the Iberian Peninsula and its provinces? That's a really good question and a really um, contested one. So Hispanic is not a preferred term anymore. People tend to opt for Latino or Latinx now to be more sort of gender neutral. But I chose Hispanic for a very specific reason and it, and it touches on, on what you mention, which is it comes from the Roman Hispania. It starts with the Iberian Peninsula and it follows that history. If I said a Latino history of the U.S., that would signal something a bit more contemporary. Because within the U.S., the identity of 
sort of Latino has been one created within the U.S. Uh, that, you know, if you're a Colombian or an Argentine or something, you come to the U.S., people call you a Latino. Oh, are you a Latino? Or worse, oh, are you a Mexican? And that's not to be rude to Mexicans, but, but often non-Hispanic people will just assume someone is a Mexican because they speak Spanish, which is, you know, really... So, so there's all kinds of problems around this, as you might imagine. The reason Hispanic is not a particularly well-liked term is that it's considered to be exclusionary of indigenous people, of Afro-descended people within, you know, Spanish-speaking, the Spanish-speaking Americas. And I definitely think there's, there's some scope for that. It's a bit more of a 19th century kind of terminology, I think. But what I wanted to do, and the reason I use it, is I wanted to kind of signal that this is a story that starts, it starts in many places, but Spain is, the, you know, the driving force. We're looking at what happened when Spain showed up here and everything that kind of followed. Now, people still do use the term, and the term is still used, and there's also a very specific term in New Mexico of Hispano, which is people who claim to be descended from actual Spaniards rather than sort of mestizo or Afro-descended people or, you know, so, and, that, and that's a whole separate thing, and I write about that in, in the book. But I wanted to kind of indicate that this is something with a very long history. This is something that, you know, starts with Columbus. I mean, obviously Columbus never came to mainland US, but, but the process that started then is, is part of, of what we see today. And, and it makes, and I, I try to make the larger point that the US is, is part of Latin America. And it, it doesn't think it is, but it, it is. <laughs> like, I'm so, sorry if you don't know this, but yeah, you know, the US needs to think of itself as sharing that history with Mexico, with Colombia, with Argentina. Yes, I mean, it all takes different forms and goes in different directions, but but the, the seed is shared, you know, the roots are connected. It is fascinating because, I mean, really, it's all about the Pilgrim Fathers, isn't it? That's the sort of uh, impression I have of American history, as I suppose lots of other Americans as well. So this is why your book was so needed and so valuable. So let's get on to some more questions. We have one here from Marjorie Kennedy, and she says, I am curious about the current state of affairs of US involvement in Latin America and how that relates to col the colonialism of the past and our political involvement overthrowing socialist leaders. What can we do now to repair these countries and give them the support they need to build up their hardworking people and develop more equitable economies and safer communities? That's a really timely question because I think the current US Vice President Kamala Harris is trying to figure that out and she is in charge of a task force with this and I think she recently met with the President of Guatemala uh, to kind of come to grips with the scale of the issue of, of people leaving Guatemala who are trying to enter the U.S. from Mexico. The U.S. is really trying to figure out what to do because they are getting a lot of people coming over the border. But to kind of answer the second part of that question first, there are just so many issues. It is a very, very tangled knot. So I'll give one example, which is one of the reasons that people are leaving places like El Salvador and Honduras is gang violence. People do not feel safe in their own countries, in their own homes. They're willing to just risk everything to get out. So in the case of El Salvador, I mean, there's, there's very much a U.S. connection to this. And as I tell you what happened, you know, think about how how is it that we unpick this? How do we how do we make this right? So in the 1980s, a lot of people left El Salvador for the U.S. The U.S. was backing uh, the civil the 
government in the civil war there as well, and tens of thousands of people were killed. So one place that a large immigrant community developed was in LA, and some of the people there became involved in street gangs. Some of those gang members got involved in drugs or whatever and were arrested and imprisoned and connected in prison. And then in the 90s, there were 1990s, there were changes in the law that made it easier to deport criminals, people who, who had criminal records. And these people would return to El Salvador. And I, my understanding is often the government was not told that they were being deported with criminal records. And so you had these sort of gang members coming back. They were already connected. They were able to plug in to those connections. And then, you know, a country that is unstable, there's power vacuums, there's drugs. And so, for instance, you see this resurgence of horrific, or this sort of development of horrific gang violence in El Salvador, and it's causing people to to leave. And that's just one example. This is not a problem that just happened in El Salvador. And then, you know, people just trying to flee it. It was it, it was the push and pull of the two countries. You know, why do people leave in the 80s? U.S. involvement. So you can see that this is very, very hard to unpick. And the U.S. is fingerprints, unfortunately, are on quite a lot of countries, in fact, probably all of them. And a lot of this obviously relates to the failure of the war on drugs as well. And now it's kind of at varying degrees of intensity. And, you know, for a long time, the heartland of it was Colombia. Now it's Mexico. But the problem is that the consumption, it's the consumption end, which is the US and Europe, you know. And so here we have, again, people in rich countries extracting a commodity this time it's legal, it's not sugar, it's cocaine, uh, or sorry, it's illegal. And the poor pay the heavy price. You know, you have people who are forced to farm poppy seeds, forced to farm marijuana or coca that's being taken from them. And again, there's, there's, it's really hard to come up with a clear answer on this uh, because on the back of it, uh, you know, there's gang violence, there's narco violence, but there's also corruption. And narcos can afford to pay off people at the highest level of governance and security. So... You know, we do have things like legislation in the U.S. that has legalized marijuana, but, you know, okay, marijuana dries up, but then opioids soar. So legalization offers some roots out of this, but, you know, if it's only going to be marijuana, then it's only going to be limited. So there's this kind of outside market pressure. There's the internal pressure. And, you know, and, and you see these things colliding in places like Mexico where you have narco-traffic narco-traficante militias basically fighting the military and police on one hand and corruption within the military and police on, on the other. So that's, um, again, a very complicated uh, problem that has built up over decades and is going to probably take decades to to resolve in some form. I mean, the easiest way is to not have a market. You know, people just didn't take illegal drugs. <laughs> but that clearly is a little more easier said than done. And now we also see the rise of climate issues. So, you know, hurricanes are getting worse with intensities. Uh, definitely Central America has been battered pretty badly. Mudslides, uh, you know, people who live in, in, in vulnerable housing are in places that are now flooding that didn't used to. And I mean, this is affecting rich countries. So imagine what it's doing to, to poorer mm. countries. And that's one of the pressures too, making people head towards the border and, and raising questions about, okay, how do we keep people in Honduras or Guatemala or Nicaragua? when their lands are flooded like how, you know is should it be aid should it be more pressure from international bodies and you know but international bodies haven't always covered themselves in glory either and the you know things like the international monetary fund have come in for a lot of criticism for putting huge debt burdens on these very small nations so you know we do have the u.s in the 20th century inflicting a lot of 
of damage in terms of not only resource extraction, things like guns, drugs and, and guns too. I mean, that's the other thing is, of course, a lot of the guns from the US are finding their way to the South. So like when you cross the border in Mexico, it says, please don't bring your guns. Guns aren't actually legal in Mexico, but people bring them, you know, somehow they get smuggled. But, you know, the US in, in the early 20th century, and certainly during the Cold War, really tried to stop certain political movements, ones that might might have, but maybe not, you know, uh, led to more equitable societies. And you can really see how this plays out with Cuba, which of course has a lot of poverty, but has a high degree of social welfare, welfare provision, despite all the punitive actions that it has faced since its revolution in 1959. So, you know, we're coming on for decades of the embargo. And yet somehow Cuba has managed to make sure that people uh, are literate, that there's a healthcare system. And, you know, it raises questions about what might have happened if leaders like Jacobo Arbenez in Guatemala hadn't been overthrown. In his 50s, he was very much into doing land reforms. And he was seen as a kind of threat. Um, the US wanted him out of the way. Of course, Salvador Allende was murdered in Chile in 1973. But to my mind, this isn't necessarily just a 20th century question. It goes back much, much further. And I write about the earlier kind of time of US intervention in El Norte in my book. So let's not forget, for instance, uh, in 1846, the US provoked a war with Mexico, which resulted in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ceded thousands of acres of Mexico to the United States. So you have the states of um, Arizona, California, New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, and parts of Wyoming were all part of this enormous territory that the US was ceded after this, this particular war. And then in the 1850s, there were kind of plots and efforts to annex the island of Cuba to the southern U.S. slaveholding states as a way to sort of extend slaveholding to the south. And those did not come to fruition, of course, but uh, but there were definitely a few plots and a few attempts. And then you have Puerto Rico, which was just handed over from Spain to the U.S. and and. 1898. So, you know, Puerto Rico is a U.S. colony. And yet when you look at its, when you look at its sort of statistics, you know, it receives less money, its health outcomes are bad. It, you know, the U.S. did not clean up the damage after Hurricane Maria in 2017. You know, um, there's a picture of President Trump, you know, famously throwing paper towels at people during um, a photo op uh, after the hurricane. And it's burdened by a huge debt crisis. And because it's not a state, it doesn't, it isn't allowed the same relief that a bankrupt state or city would get in the U.S. So, you know, perhaps in figuring out how to help the rest of Latin America, it might do well for the U.S. to solve the problems in Puerto Rico as a starting point in some ways. I, I, you know, my understanding is with this current push to try to make Central American nations a little more stable so that people won't leave. You know, this is very, in, in some ways that's very different to, to Puerto Rico in that Puerto Ricans uh, have U.S. passports and they can live anywhere in the U.S. And so they're not part of what is seen as like an immigration issue. However, it is a colony and, La and Puerto Rico is part of Latin America. And so, you know, the way that the U.S. sort of treats it is quite emblematic, I think, of its larger relationship with the rest of the hemisphere. Gosh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that Puerto Rico was a colony. It's technically like a, they call it a commonwealth or whatever, but it's a colony. Basically. So oh, goodness. They're always having referendums on independence and stuff. Like there's, there's been multiple kind of referendums. And it's, it's a real push-pull because 
Puerto Rico has better infrastructure than a lot of other Caribbean islands because it does have U.S. money, but it's still treated mm. worse than if it were a state. Mm. Okay, we have another question now from Karen Phillips. It's one of those what if questions. So she asks, regarding Latin America, Haiti and the Caribbean, theoretically speaking, what could these areas be like now had they never been invaded by Europeans? What could the peoples already calling these areas home be like? How might they have progressed culturally and economically speaking? Could their already extant cultures have merged over time or would there be more likely to have constant struggles? I'm afraid I'm never really great with counterfactual history. Uh, and I do find it hard to imagine what it would have been like if the Europeans had never arrived or if they'd been killed off or run off enough times to, to significantly quash any desire to ever cross the Atlantic. And it's funny with Florida, and I read about Florida and El Norte, it took multiple, multiple attempts to put a colony on Florida. It's kind of like, maybe, yeah, that wasn't such a great idea. It, it took almost sort of 50 years and, and, and multiple attempts and people dying, including Juan Ponce de Leon, before before the Spaniards had a very small settlement in um, St. Augustine and in the 16th century. So I think for it's hard for me to think about what would have happened because we are still discovering a lot about what existed before 1492. Now, the, the picture is far clearer than it was, say, like 50 years ago. But the important thing to bear in mind is that these societies are not and were never static or homogeneous. So just to take like the main examples, which would be the Mexica or the Aztec, as people call them, the Inca. And then I will include the Arawak in this. And the Arawak people were kind of northern South America and the Caribbean. But in the Caribbean, Europeans called them Taino and Carib. But it's basically all part of, of a similar group. So in the first two, I mean, these were imperial systems of their own, the Mexica and the, and the Inca. So, you know, would have the been constant conflict absolutely you know these were diverse conquered people living under their their rule now in the case of the arawak and the circum caribbean there was more fluidity and movement but there was definitely cultural mixing and and that sort of thing and there was just a lot of blind spots uh, for a long time about these cultures because we didn't have the archaeological practices that exist now and i, I think as well it was probably quite easy to romanticize them, or maybe we should say exoticize them uh, as these quite kind of Edenic places that you know were untouched by the problems of the modern world, or or, or they were also presented as the opposite sometimes. It's like these savage places where people had human sacrifice, and it kind of went between these two extremes. But really, what we have are places that were just you know real societies with their own practices and cultures, most of which Europeans did not understand and a lot of the circulated sources of the time especially in like the 16th century and this really bears repeating you know were done by priests and people who wanted to convert the people that they met i mean not all of them but it was either people who wanted gold <laughs> or wanted to convert or you know so we so we have to think about who was who's been narrating our ideas about about these people now that being said with new DNA technology and other scientific innovations, we're starting to get a very different picture. So one thing that is obvious is that the arrival of Europeans disrupted the systems that were there, the hierarchies, the gender relations, the agricultural sort of practices and, and that sort of thing. 
but that didn't put an end to these places and to indigenous cultures. And certainly throughout the, the hemisphere, there are absolutely indigenous communities that remain. And places like Mexico have a number of indigenous languages that are that are still spoken. And in the case of the Caribbean, where the narrative has long been that everyone died from disease, everybody was killed either by the Spaniards or by disease, new DNA technology is showing us that that past actually is genetically alive uh, in people. And so, you know, when you start to say, well, you know, what are the traditions and what, what do people do in these in these various islands? And like that, is that coming from that sort of indigenous past as well? And so this all this kind of new technology is making people really rethink what we already know uh, about these regions. So it's kind of a really interesting time to be working on this. And I'm not, I, I don't do archaeology, but it feeds into the writing of history because historians then have to rethink what, what we know if we find out that, you know, a certain segment of, you know, Arawak people had a certain technology. Well, wait a minute, what does that, you know, what does that mean? And um, when, when we talk about, you know, how they might have progressed or changed over time, I mean, it's interesting because there was already such exceptional technology. You know, I was thinking of like the Inca with like their metal work, their kipu knotted strings. You have the Mexica with their like, arc, you know, their built environments, their cities, their aqueducts, the way they, you know, manage space. You have, you know, the Arawaks with their navigational prowess. And we see all of that, that all of that still lives today in various ways. We think about Mexican textiles or silver work or and so some of that's still alive but you know some of it was just i wonder i mean it is an interesting question in this sense you know if the european encounter maybe had come later and a different type of weaponry had been developed in that in that gap you know would that have changed things i mean the europeans came with guns or you know would the the biological moment have been different uh, it just so happened that the diseases that were brought over were damaging to the you know people of the Americas, but what if you know everything happened a hundred years later and actually the Europeans were the ones that died and 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 in other places they did I mean certainly diseases like malaria and stuff absolutely killed Europeans by the dozens hundreds but in, in, in this in this particular moment you know had the timing been slightly different it's it's hard to say but it, it certainly could have perhaps tipped the other way and then just thinking about this i was thinking about you know what if what if it had been moctezuma's like oh i'm gonna lead a flotilla across this ocean and and that is actually quite a fun thing to imagine if he had shown up with a bunch of ships you know resplendent in in his uh, capes and feathers and what have you to say i'm here what is this what is this nonsense in in southern spain so so but but i guess my point to to this question is this is not a past that that is past this is there is there's still a living history element to this so you know yes it was forever altered by the arrival of europeans but that's not to say that we can't kind of glean some of it fantastic as karen says it's fascinating to wander through the what ifs and i really <laughs> like the idea of him turning up in in spain that's that's really great fun <laughs> nearly last question for you i okay. think this is from david walter and he says modernity is the yardstick by which we measure the progress stability and culture of nation states in today's international system has any semblance of pre-colonial values of africa asia latin america the pacific the caribbean and north america in fact helped shape the identities of these nation states 
So this is like a really broad question, and I I can't really comment about pre-colonial values or practices or beliefs in all of these places. Uh, I mean, even within Africa or Asia or Latin America, there'll be huge variation in what comprised kind of pre-colonial, pre-European life. But what I will say instead is that it might be helpful to pick at the issue of modernity and what we mean by that. Now, historians have been doing this for a while now, and there was a little bit of a modernity arms race about who was the most modern that, you know, that that, that you wouldn't have thought of. So there's all kinds of, you know, the Romans were modern. No, no, the ancient Greeks were the most modern. Or no, you know, actually the Arawaks with their canoes were the most modern. Or, you know, everybody kind of had a case for certain types of modernities, which which is interesting. And it's been a, a really useful kind of turn, especially helping to move us away from Eurocentricism, certainly. But I still think the real issue is what what is, you know, what is the modernity we're talking about? Now, one case that I write about in my book uh, in El Norte is Mexico at the turn of the 20th century. And there was a, a time when in Latin America, Brazil to, to a degree and, and Mexico and other places were kind of enthralled to pos- positivism. So in my case in El Norte, I write about Mexico at the turn of the century and the positivists, many of whom were influential in Latin America at the turn of the 20th century. And these were, I don't know if we'd call them technocrats, but at the kind of heart of what they what they were about was having measurable progress the idea that you know there's this kind of measurable observable progress i mean that's kind of part of it but it's the part that to me is is kind of the most interesting because it's very related to how we live right now you know the more apps the more metrics you know we're progressing so in the late 19th century mexico you have a dictator porfirio diaz and he surrounds himself with these sort of positivist uh, technocrats and they lay railways and they industrialize and you know Mexico's becoming modern and joining the modern world and there's this kind of whole discourse about this and you know everything was measurable you get your telegraphs and you know electricity and there's an idea that this was this kind of unstoppable march to to what what people might call modernity but at the same time you know this, none of this was democratic poor were losing their land the rich got richer and by the end of the, this whole period ends in the Mexican Revolution, which completely disrupts the country for a decade. So, you know, we really have to kind of question the assumption of modernity. Like, is it, does it just mean technological innovation? I think there's this idea that technological innovation will lead to order and stability and it'll end poverty and everybody will be happy. But I think if we look at social media in the last 10 years, if that's a technological innovation and where it's gotten us... <laughs> You know, I think we're heading for a decade of disruption. So, you know, what is what is it? What is modernity? Uh, I mean, it's very much a philosophical question. You could you could argue it in many ways. You could say it's just a break with 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 the past. You know, it's it's a it's kind of a new a new way forward. But I don't know. Sometimes I feel like older practices just get kind of rewrapped and shinier packaging and so we see these things come we see these great leaps forward in terms of technology or human health or things like that but then but then the same problems are still there the same problems haven't been solved like poverty inequality land dispossession and that sort of thing so you know what what does modernity mean does it mean indoor plumbing does it mean nuclear weapons you know the very fact that we even have wars makes me think that we're not quite as modern as we'd like to pretend we are (laughs) oh thanks very much carrie and finally what is next for you are you working on a new book or concentrating on articles for the guardian at the moment 
I am attempting to work on a new book. It is going to be about the abolition of slavery in the Americas. It's going to very specifically focus on African slavery, which was the majority of the slavery in the Americas uh, as a hemisphere. And I'm going to take, I want to especially look at the struggle for freedom from the enslaved, from you know runaway slave communities, from free people of color. I, I, I want to look at the story from that perspective rather than the necessarily you know the Quaker abolitionists and William Wilberforce like that's all obviously part of it but there's a really interesting uh, and rich history of the multiple ways that people tried to to gain their freedom and the, and the legal barriers that were erected kind of at every at kind of every turn and and on top of that I kind of want the book to be a bit of a meditation on democracy and the connection between democracy and freedom and how we think about it so but i say i'm trying because as we speak you know brazil is having kind of the worst covid numbers in the americas and, and colombia is having protests right now and all the places i want to go are kind of having covid related fallout so hopefully i'll be able to get actually get to them at some point but for the moment i'll have to do with digital archives and, and things like that Fantastic. Hoping. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fascinating. And yes, definitely. It's going to be a whole new world when we come the other side of COVID, I yep. think. Okay, well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining mm. me today. It's been a pleasure having you on our podcast series. And thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. 